The information in this podcast is current on the day of recording. It is general advice only and does not take your personal situation into account. It may not be suitable for you. Participants in this podcast may also own the stocks discussed. For a full list of current recommendations and stocks owned by staff, members of Intelligent Investor can visit www.intelligentinvestor.com.au. Welcome to this special podcast. I'm your host, Nathan Bell. I'm the Portfolio Manager at Intelligent Investor. When we're on the road and through the comment section of our website, one of the questions we get asked most about is, how can people find a good, trustworthy financial planner? And it's often, I think, an area where a lot of people have bad experiences or they want to manage their own money and take control. Uh, but they jump straight into the investing part without actually going through the planning part about their finances the value that can be missed in that process. We've written and published a number of articles over the years on what to look for, but I've decided to get a couple of experts on the on the line. Uh, they are Mark Draper and Shannon Corcoran of Gem Capital in Adelaide. Welcome, guys. Thanks, Nathan. Thanks for having us. Thanks, Nathan. Good to be here. Lovely to have you in Adelaide the, the other week too, mate, I must say. Uh, it's a pleasure always. Uh, I was just glad you'd have us New South Welshmen back into South Australia. It was a pleasure and... <laughs> Free, I, I can attest. <laughs> uh, the fact that I did, uh, Mark drives fast cars and he took me out to the track in Tail and Bend and uh, it was rather embarrassing uh, comparing the, the fast hot laps, um, but it was an awesome uh, bucket list event for me. So uh, it's probably a good point to say, uh, including biases, not only have you taken me for a drive in a beautiful Camaro, uh, you're also, also a Hawthorne supporter. Uh, so again, that's going to bias <laughs> anyone to me. And also, I believe uh, interest or your clients are invested in some intelligent investor funds as well. So for people out there in Absolutely, transparency, yeah. uh, please keep that in mind. So the reason I've got you and guys on the phone, sorry, go, Mark. Oh, I was going to say, we're also subscribed to you guys as well so and have done for quite a long time. So uh, just so that you know. Okay. So, uh, so we'll talk more about that investment process as we get into the detail. But the reason I really want to get you guys on the phone is because there's not only just a lot happening in your industry, uh, but there are also some things that I think investors and uh, people looking to protect and grow their savings are having to deal with for the first time, such as zero interest rates. Uh, so there's a whole lot going on in a, in a number of different aspects. But also, I just think people, they continue to ask us when we talk to them, they just don't even know how to go about finding a good financial planner or an independent financial planner and who can they trust and what to look for. So um, before we get into all the details of strategies and investments and all those sorts of things, uh, what I'd just like to, you to do first is I'll start with you, Mark. Uh, what was your background and, and how did you start and why did you start Gem Capital? Yep. Um, so my background, I uh, worked with a major bank for, uh, for a period of time, a long time ago, and then um, moved from there into a broking firm. So I've had uh, the other side of the fence in stock broking. And then uh, about 20 years ago, we didn't want to work for uh, anybody else anymore. So we started up our own business. And that's when we, uh, we started Gem. Uh, and then we've been pretty much the same structure ever since, or largely the same structure ever since that point in time. Um, but it was particularly handy, uh, Nath, having a broking experience so that you get uh, two sides of the, you can understand both sides of the fence, I think, from an investment perspective. And Shannon, you're an AFL journeyman before you joined Mark. Uh, how on earth did you draw the short straw and end up with this bloke? 
good question. Um, so I did, yes, I played uh, some AFL football for a number of years and um, and during that time uh, I was young but um, was able to earn a little bit of money and I had a, a poor experience with uh, financial planning and so that made me get quite interested in it um, and to see whether there was kind of a better way to, to do it to just to manage my own money. Um, and then so when I finished playing football, I... Um, worked for a financial planner for a number of years and um, started to learn and um, as to what how to go about it and those sorts of things. And um, as a result of that, then I was fortunate enough to meet Mark um, after a couple of years and we had similar investment philosophies. So I just developed from that and um, and Mark and I have been together uh, at General Capital no. for a, uh, <laughs> about 16 or 17 years now, which has been fabulous. And Gem Capital is what we refer to as an independent financial planner or, or operator. Can you tell us what that means and why that uh, separates we, you from most other planners? We, we're going to get a nasty note in the mail if we say that from ASIC, Nathan. So um, we're, we're not uh, able to use that term, but okay. um, we're not affiliated with a product provider. So if your definition of – it's just we can't use that term. But yep, what we can say yeah, is, is that we're uh, – we, have we, we run our own business and we own our own license, which means that we're not tied up in any shape or form with any product provider. Okay, perfect. So let's start with the, the hard-hitting question first. Why does the financial planning industry have such a poor reputation, particularly after uh, things like the recent pain commission? Yes, it's. Um, I think there's a few reasons. Um, probably the first one was that um, it was well trotted out that it took more time to become a qualified hairdresser than to become a qualified financial planner. And so the education standards previously were reasonably low, uh, let's put it that way. And of course, um, it would take considerably longer to recover from a, uh, a poor financial plan than a poor haircut. But um, I think a lot of that's been addressed though now in the education standards. So people have got to have degrees, etc., to enter. Um, I think some other reasons, uh, Storm Financial, uh, which just goes back to around GFC times. So they were double and triple gearing people, uh, pensioners, in fact, uh, sometimes into uh, an expensive stock market, charging fees that would probably make your nose bleed. And um, I think the third one that stands out for us is the uh, pretty high profile fee for no service issue. And anybody who owns shares in the major banks, would know all about this because there's been a massive amount of remediation uh, money being paid back to uh, to clients of financial advisors who were charging fees, but when asked to provide evidence of the service for those fees, uh, the file was somewhat blank. So uh, um, I think it's probably a combination of those things. And some, some of those have, been, have well and truly been addressed now, and I think the industry is in transition now, uh, moving away from some of those issues. So I did, uh, I think it was the Securities Institute um, of Australian Securities Institute of Finance or something like that. I think it's done with Kaplan now. Uh, yeah. But a long time ago, I did the course. I, did, um, I finished my CFA and got my job at Intelligent Investor and I just didn't have the energy to do the one last subject of the financial planning course. But the one thing I remember was the main thing it was all about was, first of all, protecting what you've got. Uh, so I just want to ask the basic question of what are the issues that planners are most useful in helping with? Oh, I think that uh, it's a good question, Nathan, but I think that um, it, 
if you have a look at the financial planning industry and and how people can invest their money, most people's um, larger amounts of money tend to be held through their superannuation accounts. Um, And I think uh, if you have a look at the, the laws and the rules of superannuation, it changes very regularly. And over the last you know, five or 10 years, there's been hundreds of different rule changes uh, across superannuation. So I think that it's helping people understand some of those rule changes and what to look out for and what to be mindful of um, uh, is, is where a financial planner can really add some some value. I think there's some other things um, that planners uh, are helpful with is just helping with some structures or helping Clients understand things like um, binding death benefit nominations um, and the like, which are, are probably things that when people think about investing their money, they're not really looking at some of those types of things. They're more focused on trying to get a good performance as opposed to thinking about the whole structure and setup of what they actually really might, might need to protect their, you know, their hard-earned investment money. We're big on, um, particularly for retiree portfolios, Nathan, making sure that, um, you know, cash flow, cash flow is king. It's a bit like running a business, you know, where you can, you can go broke making a profit if you haven't got the right amount of cash flow. Same, same with investing. So, uh, so we're big on that, making sure that people who've got adequate cash flow, irrespective of market conditions, we can c- touch on that later. I think some of the other things that... Um, planners can be particularly useful with though is is just saving people from themselves i remember back in the last tech boom that we had which is around 1999 and uh, i had a lady wanting to sell all the portfolio that she had which was uh, things like woolworths it was bank stocks and you know I hate using the term blue chip, but so she wanted to sell all of that and go into one IT stock. Um, I think it happened to be Melbourne IT at the time. And um, and so we just said we weren't going to do that. So I think left to their own devices, some people will take more risks on than they, uh, than they would otherwise prefer to do. So, and I reckon the, the, um, the other things that planners are useful for is, is mapping out where people are at. So, so for instance, um, and giving them comfort that they've actually got enough money to be able to do the things that they want to do. I'm talking more so retirees, but also people who are accumulating. Um, so as a, as a, for instance, I've got a client who's got a $100,000 government super pension, a $3 million portfolio, and, um, and he's worried whether he can afford to replace the curtains in his house to cost about five grand. That's an extreme example, but... Um, I, I do think there's a role for advisors to play to, to give people confidence that they've got enough money to do what they what they want to do, or, or alternatively, that if, if they haven't got enough, to actually be bold enough to say, "Look, that's not sustainable to, uh, to to do what you're proposing." I think it's almost like it's taken for granted just because we've got money and we earn money and save money that we we know what to do with it and we understand the rules and how best to manage it. It's almost I think of people that uh, I think you need a license um, to have an animal or you at least have to register it and yet you can go on the share market without absolutely any background or skill or experience and you're taking on professionals that are only too happy to take your money off you. And and I'm often reminded that um, um, 
50% of people don't understand percentages, Nathan, so, uh, which is basic mathematics. And so uh, if you've got a large slab of a population having difficulty with mathematics, it's going to be very difficult for them to, uh, to manage money, particularly up against uh, professionals. But, um, and not that the professionals get it right every time either, clearly. But, um, but for mine, I think one of the key things that advisors can do is, give, is, is, is make the complex simple in terms of legislation, because there's a lot of complexity at tax law, a lot of complexity at superannuation law, a lot of complexity at Centrelink law. So it's making those things simple and understandable. Um, and then I think it's also uh, providing people with confidence to, to be able to make decisions. Investing is probably the sexiest aspect, I guess, of uh, financial management. Uh, but are there any areas that you think are particularly undervalued or not used uh, by, by people enough? Oh, that's a good question. I think um, just um, helping people to remain calm and sensible when, say, markets might be a bit turbulent. So, you know, we've seen obviously this year with uh, COVID, um, you know, coming worldwide that there was a lot of market volatility. And I think, um, you know, during that time, there's a lot of uncertainty and people can um, make rash decisions or um, they can... um, just start listening to lots of noise going on in the market and therefore um, can potentially um, do some some damage to their portfolio um, by just not taking time to think and get the right sort of advice or listen to the the right people. Um, It's interesting that you've both talked about the psychological aspect of managing money. When I first started Intelligent Investor, one of my colleagues said to me straight off the bat that investing was 80% psychology and only 20% 20% analysis. I reckon he's so true. That was Steve, wasn't it? Was it was. That, wasn't it? was Steve yeah, Johnson. Yes. 100% correct. So um, I reckon one of the other things that's really undervalued, Nathan, is um, is making decisions. Shannon touched on it before. Things just simple, relatively simple things like death benefit nominations on superannuation funds um, because people don't appreciate that the laws governing what happens after death in superannuation is completely different to what it is in normal estate estate law. I'll give you an example. Um, so I, I had so, so as a for instance to qualify for somebody's superannuation benefit if they had no other uh, if they had no nominations. Ultimately, it's up to the trustee of the fund to decide where the money gets paid to. So it's. Uh, uh, which, which means it's up for grabs. And the, I think the test is uh, words to the effect of um, you've got to demonstrate you've got an interdependent relationship, which could, you know, you could argue a one-night stand could actually uh, consist of or could constitute a, uh, an interdependent relationship. So, so as an example, um, I, I had a, he was actually a friend of mine, uh, a fair bit older than I was, but... Um, he passed away and he was with a woman about six months before he died and um, they separated. But once she found out that he died, she wanted access to his superannuation money. And so what she did to do that is, and this is quite tacky, but she broke into his house after he died, moved all her furniture back in and then claimed that she was madly in love with him and they were going to get married just so that she could then have an argument to take to the superannuation fund to say, I'm actually eligible for his superannuation. It's, it sounds bizarre, but that's actually a true story. So um, and, and if I can finish off the true story, the, the funny part was, was that when they separated six months ago, it was under a police order. So 
to claim they were madly in love and going to get married was a complete contradiction to what the police report said six months earlier. So uh, that's just a bit of karma for you, Nathan. But I think I think simple things like that, making sure those boxes are ticked. Things like estate planning as well. So I think it's something that, um, you know, when we're younger or, or when we get married or something, we might take out a will, but um, you mightn't actually look at that for several years. Maybe you make a change if you have some children, but then, uh, you know, as your children grow, you might uh, just leave that will, you know, unchecked for many, many years. So, and I'll give you an example. I had a client um, not long ago who, when he came on uh, as a new client, we went through the process of just looking through his will and reading the wills. Um, and it turned out that when I asked him about the executor, it was actually his sister's ex-husband who was the executor of his estate so um, and he had forgotten completely about that so it, it's just things like that that actually can help people just refocus um, and and get a fresh set of eyes looking at their situation that may or may not need some changing but if you don't look at it you you won't know i had a uh, client actually on that that um when i read his trustee for his family trust the appointor, which is the ultimate controller of the trust who can hire and fire trustees, was his ex-wife. <laughs> he was most alarmed to find that out. But um, I reckon one of the other things that's undervalued, though, is just looking at investment risk. And um, uh, I, I really like reading Howard Marks' uh, material on investments and um, and his philosophy on risk, um, which, which basically is by the time you've worked out, uh, we, we find out, that you've taken too much risk after the event. And um, so I think a planner can help uh, investors understand what some of the risks are, best, best by an example that I know you'll appreciate. So with, with bank hybrids, which were sold quite aggressively, um, our explanation to clients was that, okay, you're, you're getting the upside of a fixed interest investment, but the downside of the stock market. And so the, the, the risk that you're taking on to get the little bit extra in income return was, was a massive risk. And, uh, and to come back to what I was getting at earlier is that you, you're only going to find out if you've taken silly risks when something goes wrong. You, you're not going to find out when everything's going swimmingly, nobody's going to, to question risk. You're only going to find out after the event. So I think there's a, a good role for uh, good financial advisors to play there. To, to really flag what the risks people are taking because they're not apparent. Um, you know, another example that comes to mind are uh, uh, you know, some of the debenture products. You've seen um, uh, a very high-profile one in Queensland uh, fall over recently. So people were looking at it as a fixed-interest term deposit because it looked and felt like a fixed-interest term deposit. But when you lifted the bonnet on that thing, uh, it was a bit of... Queensland property development, what could possibly go wrong there? I think there was an Indian software company involved in it as well. There's, so it was a very different uh, very different investment than what uh, what had appeared on the outside. The key, the key for us is, um, is is seeing a good financial advisor is much more about, is much more than investment advice. There's a lot of strings to it. You know, it's tax, it's estate planning, it's cash flow, and it's risk management uh, and education. Yeah, even just our discussion so, <laughs> even our short discussion so far just reminds me how complicated this stuff can get. What areas are planners not very helpful with for, you know, maybe there's reasons why you can't get involved or there are other reasons why you're not willing to get involved? 
we, we didn't have a big list here, Nathan, yep. <laughs> without trying to blow our own backs. I think um, if I were to nominate one, though, it would be that we're not helpful in picking macroeconomic events, but I don't think we're orphans there. So definitely not. We, we, we have less focus on trying to, to pick some of those things. I don't know. What I, do you think, Shannon? Yeah. I think, um, I mean, our role is to help guide and educate clients and um, I think sometimes you can provide some advice and some education but um, some people just won't um, be willing to listen or to to make the changes necessary so I think it's sometimes hard it's hard for some people to it's just it's it's yeah as, I, as Mark said we didn't have a big list and I think it's just it's just not something we focus on or look at, I guess. So we, we just try and help people where we can without um, without blowing their money up. Or um, So we just help educate people and um, so we don't focus on some of those other things. Uh, one of the things that frustrates me personally is you read a lot of articles that talk about the uh, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars you need to establish your own self-managed super fund. Uh, for me personally, I just think you know the cost of managing a self-managed super fund these days is quite cheap. So um, I never understand why you need three hundred thousand dollars or more to do it. But in terms of getting financial planning advice, there seems to be more commentary about after the Hain Commission that you're going to need even only the rich people can afford financial planning advice. Um, is this correct, or is there some minimum amount of money you need, or how do you know when you should be getting advice? I think um, there's two parts to that question, Nathan. I think um, anybody with money should get some financial advice. Um, so it's difficult to draw a line in the sand for how much money do you need before you should seek advice. I would argue that it's better to seek some form of advice when you have money. The second part, though, is um, the costs of providing financial advice out the other side of the Royal Commission uh, and the compliance standards really mean, I, I tend to agree that uh, the unintended consequence of that Royal Commission is that um, the cost of advice will go up and, and is likely to result in the people with lower balances not being able to afford to get the advice that they actually need. So to put perspective on it, typically most financial advice firms would tell you that it costs probably $4,000 to put on a new client by the time you've gone through the entire process. So Somebody with $10,000 to invest clearly is not going to pay $4,000 to, uh, to obtain that financial advice, just to put it in perspective. So, so I'm, I'm, it's hard to give you a, a, a deadline number, but the costs have gone up. And I suspect, notwithstanding the announcement at, at, at ASIC this week, that we're probably going to see even more uh, red tape come through for, as a result of the Royal Commission pushing the costs up, up even further. Um, so I think it's probably in the hundreds of thousands of dollars that you're going to need to justify going and seeing somebody. But I would encourage people to get some form of financial advice with any amount. Yeah. And I assume that amount is like X owning your own home, that sort of super balances and, and all the rest of it? Yes, it yeah. is. Yeah. So in, investable money uh, outside house and motor vehicles. So yeah, we're talking yeah. cash, investments and super funds. Uh, we did have a long list uh, in our notes about uh, the sort of things you should ask a financial planner to work out whether they're trustworthy and the right person for you. But in the interest of time, there's some things that I think are just more important and we may come back to some of those things. But the one thing I imagine that most retirees are struggling with 
at the moment is these monetary policy settings around the world that have essentially put interest rates at the zero bound. And essentially what's happening is that the savers and the people that in the past used to be able to earn a 5 or 6% interest rate on their savings, which is a low-risk way to earn the income to live off, being sacrificed to save, I guess, in a sense, the, the people who have over-indebted themselves. How are you dealing with this and what sort of a, um, strategies, I guess, are you helping people with? The, um, the first thing is um, making sure that they've got a couple of years of the income that they need in a safe haven. So that, that's always been our strategy and, uh, and that, that's still the case. So that people can section off an amount of money that they know they're going to get their income for the next couple of years and then look to invest the rest to get a higher rate of income and, and bottom line higher rate of return. Um, I think um, your website, the Intelligent Investor, and, and your funds, the Income Fund, Nathan, is also not a bad start to, with a focus on uh, on income. So, for instance, uh, you guys have had a, a positive recommendation on Telstra, which is paying, you know, like 5.5% fully franked. Uh, so I think getting access to good information such as the Intelligent Investor uh, uh, or, or an Income Fund. Um, th- there's some other opportunities of investments that are paying sustainable levels of income and uh, the emphasis that we would make here is on sustainability of of income so for instance there's some plain vanilla property trusts with low amounts of gearing that have got good tenants and good cash flow um, that are paying reasonable levels of income defined by five to six percent per per year Uh, so we're we're selectively looking at that um, we're also selectively looking at um, some good Australian businesses that uh, that have got sustainable profit levels with good balance sheets that can also pay income. And these are the sort of businesses you're flagging in the Intelligent Investor, so there's nothing new there. Um, re- really what it means, though, uh, as a statement of the obvious, is with cash rates expected to be cut again on Melbourne Cup Day um, to you know below quarter of 1%, it means people are going to either accept that low rate and stay in fixed interest or they're going to have to go up the risk curve. Um, and the thing that we would be most cautious about is when you go up the risk curve, just make sure you understand what you're, uh, what you're getting into. So, you know, that, that debenture product that I, uh, that I flagged, I'm not mentioning names of that, but that was an example where, sure, the income rate was 6%, but the risks were massive and, and you probably would have had to have got a double-digit return to justify the risk you were taking on. So I think that that's the only word of caution. And, and the other one that we're actually uh, looking at is there's some pretty good managed funds in listed investment company space that are trading at very deep discounts, run by good management teams that have got um, uh, um, profit reserve accounts. So there's just, there's, there, there is a reasonable level of uh, security, uh, sustainability of dividends from some of those. So uh, Platinum Asset Management run a couple and they're still trading at, uh, you know, they've, they've got a good management team and they're still trading at uh, reasonable discounts on, on a reasonable yield. So, I mean, it's not this, I don't think there's a magic pudding though, Nathan. Uh, it's it's focusing on the fundamentals of investing and the fundamentals of, uh, of cash flow um, and looking for sustainable levels of income while, while rates are low. And rates are probably going to stay low for a while. I think the things, the other things that we, we would caution people on is um, just be aware of fixed interest funds that are investing in, say, government bonds that are that are long, what's considered long duration. So, because in a, most people would look at the government bond market and say, well, that's a secure investment because it's a government bond. Uh, 
Um, those who invested in the Argentina government hundred-year bonds last year would probably argue to the contrary. But um, the, the issue that people investing in government bonds, if they're in a government bond fund, will have is when interest rates actually rise out the other side. So we, we, we're somewhat cautious on that sector. So it's a, it's a bit of knowing what to have a have a crack at at the same time as knowing what you're going to stay clear of in this sort of low interest rate environment. I love that warning. Is there anything else that you're seeing from people walking in the door uh, with some bright ideas about uh, trying to escape low interest rates that you think are particularly dangerous or is just that's the main one? Um, I came across one the other day, actually. Uh, he invested a whole swag of money in uh, structured products, which um, have, have a look and feel of a term deposit, but lift the bonnet under it and um, you've got a bit of money in government bonds and the rest of it's off with the rocket scientists in derivative products and uh, uh, what could possibly go wrong there. Um, and of course, with the market volatility in March, these things just blew up. So, you know, structured products, we, we don't have any here. Uh, so we, 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 don't, we don't go there. Um, but you'd be careful of, uh, of anything like a structured product and how you pick it's a structured product if it's uh, being marketed to you by an investment bank. Um, and, and they're not bad products as such. It's just they can be very complicated. Um, and so you just got to understand. I think that's the key point. Understand what, what it is that you're investing into before you invest into it. Uh, so we, we tend to give those things a wide berth. You both spend quite a bit of time uh, assessing individual securities, um, as I can tell from what you've just told us. Is, is that common for a financial planner or do most just defer to managed fund or ETFs to get exposure in their portfolios? Yeah, a lot of um, the financial planning industry will actually say that they outsource the investment process, be that to a fund manager or, or the like, um, which is interesting because it's um, it's almost like outsourcing your job. Um, it would be like going to see a surgeon who would charge you the fee to do the surgery but then have that performed by a robot, which I'm not sure we'd all be too happy about that. Um, so I think that, um, yeah, it, it, I find it interesting um, in that respect. And I think to tie it back to one of the issues you were talking about before, Nathan, is that if I were looking for a financial advisor, what would I ask? If, if you go to the ASIC website, the ASIC website would guide you into things like, you know, ask for qualifications, experience levels and, you know, costs, etc. But everybody everybody will get through those. That, that's just entry ticket stuff. I think the real question to ask a financial advisor is about where do you get your investment information? And, and you're looking for multiple sources, not just one broker. Um, and, and in particular, you're looking for do they outsource that or do they do, do the investment piece themselves? Um, and then I think the other question which I would want to know is how are you invested? So... I think that would tell you a hell of a lot about a financial advisor to ask them to, to show you their personal investment portfolio. Um, and I think the, the other aspect of it is, uh, is to ask them, what's your investment philosophy? So um, we won't turn this into a commercial, but we're really clear at uh, Gem Capital about what our investment philosophy is to the point that it's actually on our website in writing to say, here's how we think about things. So they're just a handful of questions that I'd, I'd ask, which really get to the heart of the issue as to what sort of financial advisor is in front of you. Another one you suggested, which I've even um, thought about 
if I walked in the doors, what level of, of administrative staff does the planner have, a, have, a, have available? Uh, why is this important? Yeah, I think that tells you everything uh, in terms of what to expect out the other side. So as a, as a, for instance, if you went into a financial advisor's office and there were three financial advisors and one, one support person, that would indicate to me that you would expect a very low level of ongoing client service after you've signed up. Um, the ratio of client service management here, as a, for instance, is two to one advisor, uh, which implies that you're going to get a hell of a lot more service than a, a ratio of three advisors to one client service manager. So I think what, what you're looking for is, uh, are, there, are there boots on the ground to actually deliver service and information and communication after you've actually signed up? Or is this a relationship where once you hand over your money, you'll never see them again? So that, that, that's the relevance of the question. And I reckon the, um, on that, while you're asking about uh, uh, client service staffing levels, you'd ask to see examples of the communication. I think particularly during uh, what we've had in 2020 with COVID, uh, I'd actually ask to see what sort of communication has been sent out to uh, existing clients, obviously not with names on there, but uh, just to get a flavour of, A, what the standard of communication is and what the messaging has been. Yeah, that's a great suggestion. And I reckon if, if I can finish on the, on the questions to ask, I would also ask, uh, and this is the critical question, even, even bigger than the investment philosophy question, is who they're licensed through. So there was research done, I can't remember who did it, where people would go to a financial advisor and the financial advice licensee, in fact, I'll go back a step, so every, every financial advisor has to be licensed with a licensee. Um, and so the licensee holds a, a financial services license or an AFSL. Um, there was research done on some of the AFSL providers who were owned by major institutions, um, such as banks or insurance companies. And the research said that uh, people couldn't differentiate whether or not these names uh, were owned by, they couldn't actually pick that they were owned by a big corporate at the end of the day. They thought they were dealing with an independent uh, financial services provider. So I think it's, it's imperative that you understand who owns the license at the end of the day. So for instance, if it's owned by a big insurance company, as a for instance, then don't be surprised that the advice is tilting you towards investing in those insurance companies' products. Whereas, um, a licensee who owns their own license, for example, and it has nothing to do with a product provider, um, they've, they've generally got no incentive to, uh, to push you down a particular product path. So I think understanding that's actually uh, very important. It's a bit like, I'm into cars, clearly, as you know, and it, it would be like going to a Toyota dealer wanting a BMW. <laughs> you know, you, you, you're going to be disappointed. So understand... what whether you're seeing a Toyota dealer or whether you're seeing somebody who can who can sell you a range of cars. There's a major, I guess it's coming out of the Hain Commission, but there's a major change or an update or upgrade in people's qualifications that's been required since. Can you explain how that came about and what's happening and what trends you're seeing in the industry? Yeah, so, and I think it's, it, it clearly it was highlighted and I think that's, you know, as much 
Mark touched on earlier about the uh, you know, qualifications of a hairdresser compared to a financial planner many years ago. So um, fortunately, the rules are changing. And um, so by the end of 2021, all financial planners have to have passed, sat and passed uh, a three-and-a-half-hour ethics exam run by Aphasia. Um, and so it's worthwhile asking your advisor whether they've either sat the exam or whether they're... Uh, they're looking to sit it soon um, because without passing that exam, you can no longer practice as a financial planner. So if you do have a relationship with it with a planner, you want to make sure that um, that's sustainable and, and long-term. And if they haven't um, set that exam, you'd want to uh, ask questions about that or whether they're going to do it. What are you seeing at the moment in terms of people sitting these exams? Is there, is there a lot of older people that are going to leave the industry and... It's hard to get a read on, but there's, I think there's less than half of the financial planning workforce has actually passed the exam so far. So they've only got another year to do it, basically. Um, and so that, that would imply to me there's going to be quite a high leave rate. Anecdotally speaking to some of the fund managers, um, they're seeing a lot of people who are still yet to make up their mind whether they're going to continue working in financial planning or, or they're going to leave. Because of because of the education requirements, um, particularly the exam. The exam's quite hard, I might add. Um, yeah, Mark and I have both um, sat and passed that exam. So so you know we. But but it did take a lot of time and a lot of effort. So uh, you need to be well prepared for it. And I think you know, some of the other qualifications. You know, by the end of twenty twenty six, you've uh, essentially got to have a degree qualification in financial planning or, or equivalent of. So. Um, and I think that ultimately will be a good thing. Um, but one of the key parts to financial planning is just having experience, investing experience and client relationship experience, which takes you know, 20 years or 15 years to get those that type of experience under your belt. The, 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 the knowledge side is really important, but um, the relationship side and understanding our various markets over, over long periods of time is also incredibly important. And the 2026 is for existing advisors. For anybody joining the industry, the, the financial planning profession now, they have to have a, a relevant degree. So, so the, the, the whole thing's changed. Um, and, and I suspect the, uh, the financial planning profession is very much in transition uh, at, the, at, at the moment. It's a live issue. Mm. So it's good to see some real change coming out of some of these commissions. Unlike the banks have just been told to lend to any. Uh, one last question walk in your front door and and start talking to you about their there anything you'd be prepared to get the value from people like yourself to get to get the most value from us um i think the first thing is to have reasonable expectations um so if people were expecting us to pick uh, the next GFC event or to pick how COVID-19 finishes. Uh, that's not a realistic expectation, um, but it is a re- realistic expectation to, uh, to select uh, investments that are, are true to label and will do the job in terms of income and, uh, and potential for, uh, for moving, uh, increasing in value. So I think having reasonable expectations of what we can and can't control is a good starting point. I think also um, being prepared to actually provide relevant information to the advisor. I think 
you know, it's, certainly it's hard when someone first walks in the door and they've never met you um, uh, to, to then go through all of their financial details and their levels of debt and levels of income and those sorts of things can be quite confronting. And, um, you know, there's some things you probably don't necessarily tell your brother or your sister or your family members, but um, it's really important to get good advice. You, you need to actually provide the, the advisor with all of that relevant information so that they can actually help you because that's that's what they want to do um, and, and that's hard for some people to provide all that. Um, a bit like going to the doctor and uh, asking for a diagnosis without actually giving any information. <laughs> I've got a headache, Nathan. <laughs> But I'm not going to tell you any more. <laughs> I can imagine a lot of people just wouldn't want to be so open and honest. I find yeah, you do get you do get a bit of it. I think the other thing too is um, is to look at the overall result rather than I think I think if it's one thing that a lot of retail investors are guilty of is overall an investment portfolio may have done quite well and yet the focus will be on. The one part that didn't. Um, so I think, yeah, we, we would just encourage people to look at the overall result rather than picking out the one thing that, uh, that didn't do so well. But that's that's just three three ideas from us. Uh, now I know you guys uh, have you take a phone call from anyone wherever they are um, to be a potential client or talk through their situation. Uh, for people, they can go to your website at Gem Capital and see the details. Also, is there any other places that people can go to if they want to compare different financial planners or how do they even know where to start to find a, a trustworthy financial planner? Probably. Yeah, I was going to say, it's a hard one. But it, look, generally it's it's word of mouth or it's you know some friends and family who may have had a long-term relationship with a financial planner is probably where you, you get your best chance. Um, and at least you can then go and meet that advisor and, and see whether you get a good feel with them or whether... Um, you're not suited to work together because it is a long-term, it should be a long-term relationship and um, both parties need to be comfortable in that relationship um, to be able to help each other. Great. Uh, thanks so much for your time, guys. Uh, I just want to thank you guys. Uh, I've actually wanted to do this for a long time, so it's nice to finally tick it off. Uh, I always like talking to you both. Um, you've got a great handle, just not on the, I think, specifics of, of your industry, but also the investing side, which uh, I think a lot of people come to Intelligent Investor and for the right reasons, as I said at the beginning, they, they want to invest their money. They've probably had bad experiences. They want to maximise their chances of not having to pay fees to people who don't deserve Other people have obviously had bad experiences with other planners and the like who have pilfered their um, But I think sometimes they just, what was clear to me anyway from some of the conversations I've had with members over the years is they've actually just missed a complete step about working out how much money they've got to protect what they've got the detail that about um, because investing is so much more seems so much more fun and interesting um, than talking about details but in the end it's those boring details that um, decide all sorts of difficult situations um, or as you said leave you and then decide to move back into your house after you're in a pine box yes. <laughs> so thank you again Mark and Shannon um, again if people want to contact you they can go to the GEM Capital website uh, thank you very much for your time and if anyone wants to leave any comments uh, after uh, listening to this uh, please do so thanks, thanks. thanks. my pleasure guys thanks,